You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge. Because as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Pliny. I hope that you've had an amazing week thus far and that your October is going well. Pretty soon, it's going to be Halloween. It's quickly approaching. So um, if you're anything like me, you plan at the very last minute for Halloween because you're thinking about Christmas already. Because y'all know, if you've been listening to the podcast, I am all about... I like Thanksgiving, but I love Christmas. But, you know, there is Halloween that approaches first. So if you celebrate Halloween, what do you plan to be this year? What do you plan to dress your little ones up as this year? Well, Harrison had to be a superhero last weekend for school. And he also, in the same day, had to be a healthcare hero as well. So we had to do a quick switcheroo costume change. So I'm wondering if I'm going to be a a bad mom if I just put him back in one of those costumes come Halloween. I'm just... I'm just saying those costumes cost money. So what do you guys think? What are you guys going to do? Maybe you gave me some ideas that I can do sort of remix and finagle without having to buy a brand new costume. Well, this week is pregnancy and infant loss awareness week. And you know that October, I feel like this month just makes its way really quickly and we'll be remiss not to talk about this. So although it makes Those of us who have lost a pregnancy or a baby feel really sad this month, particularly this week. It's still good to remember our little ones, what they would have been, and to share our stories to allow us to continue to heal and to help others heal. So I know we're switching gears, but we do need to talk about this topic today. Tens of thousands of families lose pregnancies or infant babies every year. In fact, One in four women lose a baby during pregnancy, delivery, or shortly after delivery during infancy or within within that first year that follows delivery. Now, as an OBGYN, I can tell you, we cry with you and we cry for you, especially when we have no idea why the loss actually happens. Data shows that one in 10 OBGYNs are actually so devastated by the loss with the stillbirth of a patient that they contemplated changing their careers. And I tell you, every time I have a poor outcome, I mean, we are beating ourselves up. And that's why we we fuss so much, right? So if I have a diabetic and I know that you have an increased risk of poor outcomes and your finger sticks aren't controlled, I'm like, no, we need to get you controlled. If you miss your appointments, I'm like, no, you can't miss your appointments because we do care. And some people think we're fussing, but we are really trying to make sure that 
we get you safely through that pregnancy so that you can go home safely and your baby can go home safely. Now, the only thing that hurts worse than a patient losing a baby is losing one of your own. We as physicians are not immune. Um, I have several friends who have lost babies. I have people that are physicians that have lost babies. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I too had an early pregnancy loss. I, like many of you who had miscarriages, I was in disbelief. I went from being excited to get my first positive pregnancy test, secretly being pregnant, because I didn't want to tell anybody, right? Because I am an OBGYN and I knew the new things can happen, so I didn't tell anybody. And then I was turning 35 at that time, so I wasn't consuming any alcohol at that time. Didn't tell anybody that I wasn't. I had like a mocktail, had a mocktail at dinner. And then a month and a half later, I wasn't pregnant anymore. And being a high-risk specialist, I knew that a third of women in my age group, meaning women over 35, have miscarriages. But you never in your wildest mind think that you will be that person. I didn't think that I would be that person. I remember getting my ultrasound and then another few days later, there was no heartbeat. That was a Tuesday. I was super early. It was only about seven and a half weeks. No one else except my husband knew I was pregnant. I worked all week and then I had a DNC, which is a dilation and curatage. That's a procedure to remove the inside contents of the uterus. So I had that procedure on Friday after clinic at about 4.30. So I worked the whole week, didn't tell anybody, walked over to surgery center and let my OBGYN, who's a really good friend, um, do my surgery uh, that right after clinic. I blocked out everything. I blocked all my emotions out. I went to two meetings the following morning. I didn't miss a beat. And it wasn't until months later that it sort of dawned on me that, oh my God, I've had a miscarriage. Like i didn't even know how to grieve. You know, my, everybody grieves a little bit differently. So for me being in the moment, I just kept going, right? You, I have two meetings tomorrow and I have this event to go to this day and we got church on Sunday. So I'm just going to keep doing things as scheduled because physically I could handle it, but emotionally I just wasn't ready to handle it. So I tell you this and I share my story So you can understand that, one, everybody is different in how they heal and how they process things, but we are also a lot alike in that we've dealt with the same stuff. Um, You know, we've dealt with losses. We've had issues coping. I had issues coping and I was confused. I'm the specialist and I was still confused and it's okay to be confused. You know, it's... It's okay to be confused. It's it's okay to still feel hurt. It's okay to feel sad about the situation. Even if it's been a while, it's okay. And we also need to learn that it's okay to be vulnerable and to talk about our feelings so that we can process them. Now, if you are like me and like all the other women that I personally know that had losses, you go through your checklist of why did this happen, right? Is it something I did? Is it something I could have done? And nine times out of 10, there's nothing you could have done in that moment. But we know that there are some causes 
of pregnancy loss that we can then later reduce your risk. Now that we know that that has happened, we know we can look back. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We can look back and find the particular cause. So there's a lot of reasons that some people have miscarriages over other people. Okay, medical problems or medical conditions like uncontrolled diabetes, high blood pressure. Those are common. Like if your blood pressure is not really well controlled, that's a that's a reason to have that your blood your placenta or your afterbirth isn't going to get enough blood flow to give adequate nutrition to the baby. So you have an increased risk of having early miscarriages. Same thing with diabetes because diabetes causes a vascular it's a vascular process. It causes vascular abnormality and that does not exclude the uterus, okay? So if the uterus is not getting good blood flow, then that could be a reason that the placenta or the afterbirth is not giving the baby the nutrients it needs. Now, antibodies, so like blood antibodies, like we talked about that in a couple episodes ago, anti-kale, anti-E. So people have had a history of a blood transfusion. You may not even know you have antibodies until after you're pregnant already. And we do a test for antibodies. But we know that with the next pregnancy, since we knew you had antibodies, we can treat you and follow you closer with future pregnancies to try to prevent a pregnancy loss. If you have a blood clotting disorder, a bleeding disorder, um, like antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, we had an episode on that too. Those are acquired antibodies that people get that almost cause vascular damage because they behave almost like a lupus-like pattern. And those antibodies can cross the placenta and attack the baby cells. So, and they can cause vascular damage at the level of the placenta. So that that's a known reason for people to have miscarriages and they're treated with blood thinners and aspirin to decrease those antibodies and decrease the inflammation of those vessels to prevent miscarriages. Things that we really have no control over, it's like exposure to viruses, right? As much as we try, it's hard to not be exposed to the flu or COVID, right? We can do the things we need to do to decrease our risk of that, like getting vaccinated for the flu and COVID, which I encourage all of my expecting mothers to do in pregnancy and people that are planning for pregnancy. If it's in that season, you should go ahead and get vaccinated and make sure your vaccines are up to date. Because if your immune system's healthy, then you are less likely to have issues with respiration or breathing. If you can't breathe, you can't get oxygen in. If you can't get oxygen in to your body, then that's less oxygen that's delivered through the blood to the uterus and eventually through the placenta. So viruses and infections, yeah, they can cross the placenta. And even if they don't, like I say, if you can't breathe, then that decreases or impedes oxygenation to the baby. So we need to, you know, those are things that we can help with just getting vaccinated to help boost our own immune system. Chromosomal abnormalities. So if you have a baby that has a definite chromosomal abnormality like Down syndrome or, you know, trisomy 18, which is Edwards syndrome, you know, all these different chromosomal abnormalities, there's a lot of them. We know that those babies are more likely to be miscarried or be a stillbirth or not survive shortly after delivery because of the things that are going on with them. Babies with chromosomal abnormalities tend to have either weakened heart musculature, even if they don't have a defect, um, or an actual defect, a brain defect, a heart defect. If your organs aren't functioning at 
you know, where they need to be, then obviously that can put you at risk for a baby passing away or a miscarriage in the inside. So we always evaluate when we have a loss for chromosomal abnormalities. And then trauma, you get a car accident. If you have a placental abruption because of the accident, that's when the placenta shears away from the inside of the uterus. You can have pain and heavy bleeding. That can cause you to lose a pregnancy. Certain medicines, if you don't know you are pregnant and you're taking retinoic acid. So we talked about that last season, I believe, in the episode called Skin. So retinoic acid is common for acne and and skin conditions, but it can cause really bad birth defects in babies and increased risk of miscarriages in the first trimester, even if even before we know if they're is a structural defect. Um, other things, autoimmune conditions that when people are methotrexate and some of the other immune receptor modulators, those can put you at increased risk for a miscarriage or a poor outcome of the pregnancy. And so I always tell people, you know, if you are on any medicines, even over-the-counter medicines, always plan the pregnancy. Look through all the labels Talk to your provider to see if this if these things are safe in pregnancy or if they're going to increase your risk of losing a baby. Of course, placental issues, sometimes we can't control where the placenta inserts attaches to. So if you have fibroids, um, if your placenta is just not functioning right and you have a small baby because the baby's having abnormal blood flow, that can be the cause of a stillbirth. Issues with your cervix, so the baby's fine, but your cervix doesn't want to stay closed. It just painlessly dilates. And when you present it to the hospital, you were already told that you're about to have the baby or your water broke early. You were six centimeters, your water broke, and you were only 28 weeks. Those are reasons that you can lose pregnancies because of early delivery, because of something like cervical insufficiency, or if that happened very early, even before the point of survivability, which is about 24 weeks, 23, 24 weeks is when we can try to save a baby, then that could be the reason of losing a baby or having a miscarriage. Of course, if you have a uterine abnormality, like your uterus is misshapen. So some people have like heart-shaped uterus, the cavity is abnormal, or they have two different horns of their uterus, or they may have two openings of the uterus, so two services. That causes abnormality in the cavity, so babies can't grow like they need to grow. The placenta can't insert and attach where it needs to attach and grow. And so those can put you at risk for losing a pregnancy um, very early or even very late. Now, for infant loss specifically, Some reasons include the congenital birth defects that I talked about previously. So diagnosed or undiagnosed. Sometimes there are things that we cannot see on ultrasound that end up, you know, we end up finding out much later after delivery. If you have poor nutrition, so you have a nausea and vomiting, you can't keep anything down and you're not getting adequate nutrition and your baby is not getting adequate nutrition. If you have issues with your metabolism, that can also affect the pregnancy. People that have uncontrolled thyroid disorder, or any really medical condition that can cause an infant loss. And if that baby inherits a metabolic disorder, that can then cause the baby to pass away. Infection, COVID is a big infection, even after delivery, that can cause a baby 
after it's born to still pass away. Trauma, obviously, some babies even in utero or inside of the uterus can get little hemorrhages or strokes in the brain. After delivery, that could be a reason that babies don't make it. And then, of course, sudden infant death syndrome. So that's what we always tell you to put the baby back to sleep. As much as we love those little babies, we can't hold them for long periods of time and fall asleep with them in our arms because then we can accidentally, you know, cause, you know, smothering or cause them to be in a position that they're breathing back in their own carbon dioxide, okay, which eventually can slow down the respiratory drive or slow down the amount of breaths babies take per minute and then they stop breathing, okay? So back to sleep, babies should be in their own sleep box if they're in the bed, meaning a little box by themselves or in a bassinet beside the bed or in a crib with no no sheets, no blankets, no bumpers, no stuffed animals in the crib, just a crib sheet and that's it. Babies can be swaddled, but they should have on what they are, what they need to keep them warm at night, not a blanket over them. Okay. Um, Because those, um, you know, covers and things like that can also cause them to accidentally breathe in too much of their carbon dioxide, which slows respiratory drive down. But I say all of those reasons, but a lot of times, half the time, actually, we have no idea why somebody's lost a baby. And the times that we do know, a lot of those, half of those of, of the ones we know are caused by chromosomal abnormalities, diagnosed or undiagnosed. So we call the ones we don't know idiopathic until we find a reason. So idiopathic means we don't know. That's what that means. If you ever see that written on the chart, we don't know, but this is what it is. Okay. Now, once a reason is known, in many cases, we can take steps to lower your risk in future pregnancies. So getting a preconception consultation or a visit to discuss what happened in your previous pregnancy before you get pregnant with the next baby is extremely important. Extremely, extremely important. Because if we know what happened with the previous pregnancy and we can plan to monitor you closely or put you on medicines that can alter the course of your future pregnancy or change some of the medicines you were on or control your medical conditions so that you're healthier during the next pregnancy, then that is a way to get you safely through to have the baby at the end of the, at the end of that pregnancy. All right. So now that we know a little more about pregnancy and infant loss, let's go to some cases. Our first case is a 29 year old who is pregnant with her second child. She lost her first child shortly after childbirth due to bleeding in the brain found a few days after delivery. She said her pregnancy for the most part was uneventful until delivery. She presented to the hospital and was already seven centimeters dilated. She delivered vaginally, but then the baby had issues feeding. The baby's brain was imaged and found to have a large area that they called a stroke. The baby was found to have low platelets and the patient had antibodies that possibly attacked the baby's platelets. It sounds like the baby had a bleed on the brain and there's reasons that some babies at full term can bleed on the brain. One, if there was trauma, obviously, if you have a placental abruption or any type of trauma, like a head trauma, that doesn't exclude the baby. So that could be a reason why the baby had a bleed on the brain. But it sounds like everything was uneventful. And I assume that if there was trauma involved, then they would have said that in this case. Okay. So if you have just 
healthy. You went in seven centimeters dilated. You had the baby. And then later after that, the baby was noted to have a stroke and low platelets. For me, that is what's called neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. And what that means, that's a con- that's a condition where moms during pregnancy have antibodies to platelets. So those antibodies can attack the baby's platelets. If the baby has a certain type of antigen, the baby's platelets can be attacked. And if the baby's platelets are attacked, they don't function. So it sort of like kills the platelets. And so if you don't have enough platelets, then you can't clot. So it's almost like a baby on a blood thinner, if you think about it like that. So neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is like a blood thinner, okay? Those antibodies act like a blood thinner because the platelets don't function. So the trauma of going through the birth canal could have been enough to cause the baby to have a bleed in the brain. Really anything with severe neonatal alloimmunization, excuse me, alloimmune thrombocytopenia can cause a baby to bleed. So that means that if she has antibodies, the dad had to have the antigen for the baby to have the antigen, right? So if it's the same dad, then the next thing that would need to be done with future pregnancies is one, check the antibody status, check the antibody level. So if she definitely has antiplatelet antibodies and it was with the same dad, once she gets pregnant, what I would recommend is an amniocentesis to check the baby's antigen status, okay? Platelet antigen status. So once we know the baby's platelet antigen status, then we know, hey, does this baby even have the antigen for the antibody to attack? If that baby's antigen negative, no big deal, right? We just go through the pregnancy, not a big deal. But if it is antigen positive and mom has a high antibody load, then we would have to treat the baby. So we would work with the hematologist to give the baby certain treatments. Now, some people with neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia are treated in the future pregnancies with what's called IVIG. Okay, that's IV immunoglobulin. And that is something to help suppress those antibodies so that not as much can cross the placenta. We will follow you with your future pregnancies with growth scans to look at the size of the baby, okay? We also look to make sure that we don't see any evidence of anemia, which could mean that the baby is bleeding even before we see signs of a bleed because the platelets aren't working, that could equate to bleeding, which could then tell us about anemia. So we will look for signs of anemia, every couple of weeks. And then if we see a bleed in the brain, that would tell us that we need to deliver the baby early, or it would tell us that we need to treat the baby more aggressively, meaning, hey, this baby may need a transfusion because the baby has already had signs of bleeding. And we look for, just like we would look for anybody um, outside of pregnancy for a bleed in the brain, we would do an MRI um, to look and confirm where those areas of bleeding are in the brain and get our neurologist on board, our hematologist on board, and perhaps our neurosurgeons, our pediatric neurosurgeons on board so that we can be safe and treat the baby aggressively after delivery, okay? And pick the optimal timing 
of delivery for the baby while we're doing um, surveillance. So I say all this to say, Nate is very rare. That's what neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia, we abbreviate that Nate in AIT. It's a very rare condition, but it can be very seriously. So it definitely needs to be followed very carefully because each pregnancy, there is a risk for fetal loss and a risk for, if you make it through the pregnancy, the baby to have major hemorrhages or bleeds in the brain, which obviously can put a baby at loss. So this is a prime reason for people to get preconception planning so that we know what the father's status is, what the mom's antibody status is, and we time it perfectly to check the baby's platelet antigen status as well so that we know how to follow the pregnancy. So the case pearl for this case is neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia in a previous pregnancy warrants an amniocentesis in future pregnancies, okay? In all your future pregnancies because we need to check the baby's platelet antigen status. All right, medical intern, what's our second case? Our second case is a 38-year-old who just had her fourth pregnancy loss, this time at 14 weeks. Her other three pregnancies were losses between 9 and 12 weeks. She had genetic testing done on her previous two pregnancies, and both babies were genetically normal. She has no medical problems, fibroids, or issues with her uterine cavity. With this pregnancy loss, she was referred to discuss further workups of pregnancy losses and counseling about safety of a DNA. This patient, you know, has two concerns, which is why she's sent for consultation. One, she's just lost a pregnancy, fourth pregnancy, which is super unfortunate. And I hate that you're going through this um, because some of this, listening to the story, we can definitely try to prevent with future pregnancies, okay? It sounds like if you had three recurrent pregnancy losses and now this is your fourth, usually what we would do is one, you did have a thorough workup. You had a genetic testing done, which ruled out chromosomal abnormalities. Because like I said, half of the known cases of miscarriages are by or due to chromosomal abnormalities. So we don't want to exclude that. So I'm glad that they did that. Two, you don't have any other issues. So we would be looking for fibroids or abnormal cavity. We would do an ultrasound to make sure that you did not have anything that puts you at risk for not carrying a baby because your cavity is just not shaped correctly. But the biggest thing that you need ruled out is what's called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. So when you have three mid-trimester losses like you have, or even three first trimester losses, recurrent pregnancy losses in general require a workup for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. We've had an episode on this before, but just as a reminder, antiphospholipid antibodies are, there are three of them. One's a lupus anticoagulant, two is a beta-2 microglobulin, and three is an anticardiolipin. If you have two out of three of those antibodies that are positive, twice, 12 weeks apart, which is why we usually do the workup right after you um, have a miscarriage, then we know that you have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. If we tested you at the beginning of pregnancy, obviously we don't have 12 weeks to retest you. So we would just treat you if you had two or three of those antibodies that are positive. I don't see that that's been done. That needs to be done. That's a very common reason for recurrent pregnancy loss, meaning 
pregnancy losses back to back to back. Okay, very common reason. And the way we treat that is we give you a blood thinner called Lovenox, okay? Or some people give heparin. Heparin injections have to be given a little bit more frequently um, than Lovenox, but we would give you pretty much Lovenox injections, 40 milligrams once or twice a day, depending on the preference of your provider, along with aspirin. So we'd also give low-dose aspirin. Those two medicines in combination together reduce your risk of another pregnancy loss if it was due to antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. So you definitely need to be um, treated for that. So that is what I would add to your workup for your pregnancy loss. In terms of counseling on the safety of DNE, there's a lot of train of thought that thinks a DNE is just not as safe because a DNE, which is a dilation and evacuation, it's the same thing as a DNC, a dilation curatage, except for after the 13th week, it's a DNE because it's uh, you have to be dilated a lot more and it's a more meticulous procedure because in the second trimester, the baby's parts, okay, like extremities are more bony. The skull is more bony. So it takes a little bit of skill to make sure that all the contents of your uterus is removed. And usually we do both a DNC and a DNE under ultrasound guidance. But a DNC usually is um, a little bit, I don't want to say easier to do, but it's usually a suction. Um, a suction DNC is what's usually done to remove the inside contents. I had a suction DNC. A DNE, we have to be a little careful because if parts are bony, then you have an increased risk of leaving parts. And if you leave parts, your body will try to continue to get rid of parts and that can cause you to have super heavy bleeding. So it does take a little bit more skill to do a DNE. So most of your general OBGYNs, unless they are family planning OBGYNs, probably won't do a DNE. They'll probably send you to someone like me that does maternal fetal medicine that deals with those sort of higher risk procedures. But if you look at the complication rate of a DNE versus an induction, although a DNE is a surgery, a DNE is considered safely safer. So the complication rate for a DNE is only four percent compared to over twenty percent if you were given medicines to try to induce your labor at fourteen weeks. And I say that because being induced at fourteen weeks, your uterus doesn't have a lot of receptors. And so when I say receptors, I mean these areas that are sensitive on the uterus to medicines to cause it to contract, okay? At 14 weeks, it's harder to cause your uterus to contract with medicines because your body is just not, you know, supposed to contract that early. So you have to sort of fight nature to get your body to contract. So it could take a much longer time to induce you, which can put you at risk for infection if you're being induced for a long period of time. And you could also be at risk for bleeding and a need for a DNC anyway, or, or another procedure after you deliver because of bleeding or the placenta being retained or still inside even after the baby's delivered. So um, so a DNE is safer, but it does take someone that has the skill to do it to be able to perform it safely, okay? So when you look at the risk versus benefits, to me, it's all about preference because regardless, if you get a, an induction with a loss, you are always going to 
have someone that's monitoring you for those complications, right? We're monitoring you for signs of infection and starting antibiotics if we need to. And then we will tell you if you definitely need to proceed with the DNE or DNC if you've already delivered. Um, we will be monitoring your cervix to see how dilated your cervix is. We will, we will be looking for that. So I don't want to tell you not to get induction if you want one because of the safety, because we will be monitoring you for those complications. But if you're talking about just comparing the two, the DNE has the, um, the lower complication rate. And that's because you go in for the procedure and 45 minutes, you're out right? Your uterus is completely empty and you are not bleeding because we make sure before you leave the operating room, you are not bleeding heavily. Now you will still bleed after both of those, after both, after an induction or a DE, and um, because you have just had a baby. And, you know, although you, you are not taking your baby home, your body is still going to behave as if you just had a baby. So you can still bleed three to six weeks after you have the baby. And, you can still, some people still have leakage from their nipples after that. You know, that, that those are still things that can happen. Um, your body is going to, you can get some swelling in your extremities or your ankles because your body is now trying to go back to its pre-pregnancy state, okay? Remember, your blood volume doubles in pregnancy. After you deliver those 24 to 48 hours after, your body has, you know, fluid shifting, Okay. And you're going to urinate a whole bunch to get a lot of fluid off. Okay. So it's the compensation of being postpartum still happens um, after that. But to me, a DNE versus induction is all about what you want. If you want to hold a baby after a pregnancy loss, you should not have a DNE if you can avoid it. Because with the DNE, in all honesty, we may not be able to remove the baby in entirety. Okay. And because it is a procedure that can distort the baby, okay? And so we do not show the baby to parents, okay? We don't do that because we know that a baby can be removed, you know, um, and almost mangled in the process of, of, of evacuating the uterus. So we don't do that. And induction would be the only way to be able to see your baby and hold your baby, okay? Regardless of the gestational age. So just, you know, people think, oh, if you do a DNE at 25 weeks, I should be able to get to hold my baby. Not necessarily, not necessarily. And you can get a DNE done at 25, 26 weeks. You can, but you won't be able to hold that baby because we, that is, we won't let you. Okay. With an induction, you can, that's the only way. So for a lot of people, they need that, um, they need the closure of holding their baby, even after their baby's passed away. So they elect to deliver vaginally. But even if you decide to be induced and deliver vaginally after you have a miscarriage or stillbirth, you don't have to hold the baby. And people think if I have a if I have a vaginal delivery, I have to hold the baby. You don't. Okay. We have several people where the dad wants to hold the baby, the mom does not want to hold the baby. And you can say what you want. Like I say, everybody copes differently with pregnancy losses. We've had dads in separate rooms to see that baby. We've had grandparents see that baby when mom didn't want to see the baby. And sometimes moms may not want to see the baby initially and then change their minds later and want to hold and see their baby. 
depending on how far along you are. And that is your prerogative. You can do that. Whatever you need to heal and give you closure is what we will do. But a DNE is not that option. A DNE is a better option for somebody that says, I don't want to know that I've done this. I don't want to go through the pain of labor and not take a baby home. And there are a lot of people that like that too. Everybody's different. So the case pearl for this unfortunate case is that a DNE is safer than induction of labor with a complication rate of 4% compared to 21% respectively. Okay, medical intern, emailed cases. Dr. Pliny, I previously had a baby I lost with Noonan syndrome. I was 31 weeks pregnant and my baby was diagnosed with high drops and a heart defect. I did an amniocentesis that confirmed Noonan syndrome. My baby ended up having abnormal heart rate two weeks later, requiring a stat C-section. He died a few weeks later in the NICU. I was told Noonan syndrome is genetic, so I was wondering how I can reduce my risk of my future children having Noonan syndrome and losing another child. For this patient, I want to make sure that we all understand that it's very normal to remember when we've had a loss, to remember our first pregnancy, remember that pregnancy we lost, right? When I went through my pregnancy with Harrison, who you guys see on social media all the time, the second pregnancy, even though I do this for a living, I was paranoid. I was super paranoid, right? So I was holding my breath. I didn't tell anybody I was pregnant until literally I was over 24 weeks with Harrison because I didn't know, you know, what would happen And I think that's very normal, but I think that at some point you have to go into the next pregnancy, realizing that it's different. It's a different pregnancy and we need to celebrate every moment we get of pregnancy, regardless of the outcome. So with this patient, you had a baby that had Noonan syndrome. Okay. So you're wondering, Hey, is it something I can pass out to future children? So Noonan syndrome is a, is a condition that almost acts like the male version of Turner syndrome, okay? Noonan syndrome babies have usually have cystic hygromas or basically broad necks with like cystic-like stru- like, um, cystic-like obstruction of the lymphatic system, basically, is what it is. So that's why they have like a... Um, a wide neck with cyst in it. If when we look on ultrasound, they can also have issues with very decreased muscle tone and it's caused by a genetic mutation. And usually the recurrent rate of someone with Noonan syndrome is less than 1%. So it's not something that usually is like passed down from generation to generation to generation. Okay. It's very rare unless mom has, you know, a, a, a balanced translocation with that defect. Okay. And then they pass down one of the chromosomal arms with that defect. And it's not balanced because you can't pass down all your chromosomes. So sometimes that can happen. That's super rare. Okay. So the risk of you having another baby with Nunez is less than 1%. So let's start there. Now I know that this baby had an abnormal heart rate. Now babies with Nunez syndrome, like I said, they have Issues with muscle tone. The heart is a muscle. The heart is a muscle. And so even if there's not a heart defect, which a lot of babies with Noonan's do have heart defects, and this baby did, but even if the baby did not, those babies can have weak heart muscles, okay? So they can have cardiomyopathy because of the weakness of their heart. That is why um, I believe 
this baby end up having hydrops, probably because of the Noonan syndrome blocking the lymphatics in combination with the heart defect, not being able to adequately pump blood through the rest of the body. Okay. If you don't have blood pump, pumping adequately through your body, you end up with hydrops in a baby. In adulthood, if you don't have a, a, a heart that works, what do you end up with? Edema. You end up with your legs are swollen, right? You end up with a cough. You have fluid build up around your heart. That is the same thing as hydrops, okay? Except for we see it a little bit different. Fluid builds up a little faster. And fluid builds up in different areas, but it's still fluid from the, the inability of the heart to function and pump normally, okay? So the likelihood of this happening in future pregnancies is low. And so because future pregnancies will likely not have Noonan syndrome, the likelihood of you having another baby with a heart defect is also low, okay? So for this, I wouldn't do anything differently with your pregnancy. I would, I would one, recommend that when you go through some counseling because I want to make sure you can cope. You can cope with future pregnancies. Two, I want you to go through genetic counseling so you can see that this is a very low risk of you having another baby with Noonan syndrome and that you can see that the reason your baby had a heart defect was because of the Noonan syndrome, okay? And then three, I want you to go through counseling because I want you to be ready, mentally ready to have your next baby and know that the likelihood of something bad happening in your next pregnancy is very, very low. The only thing I recommend in a future pregnancy is that one, you get early genetic screening and counseling. Two, we do do a detailed ultrasound on you somewhere around 18 to 20 weeks so that we can look at the baby from head to toe to make sure that we don't see anything. Other than that, your pregnancy is going to feel and be treated as a low risk pregnancy with your future pregnancy because you're not at increased risk for this happening again. Okay. I'm sorry that you went through that. I think that that's very unfortunate that you lost a baby and that you had to have a C-section um, urgently. That must have been very traumatic for you. But the likelihood of it happening again, super slim. Thank God, but super slim. All right, medical intern, do we have any other cases? And my medical intern is shaking her head no. So thanks so much for listening to Pregnancy Pearls podcast. I hope that you've learned more about pregnancy and infant loss. I know that this isn't a topic we like to discuss, but I'm glad we were open and allowed ourselves to talk through the topic to help someone else and help ourselves heal. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or a unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. Also, since this week is Infant and Pregnancy Loss Awareness Week and the actual day of remembrance is October 15th, I'll be going live on Instagram with Jessica, with Dr. Jessica Daigle, who is with uh, Mommy and Me, is her company. We're going to discuss this topic and answer all of your questions pertaining to pregnancy and infant loss. So make sure to tune in via my Instagram page and converse with us. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Bye.
Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.